Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Uh, don't forget to check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis, and it's where you can find details of our events in person and online. Coming up on the show today, Jason Riley, Senior Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, a Wall Street Journal columnist and author of the new book, Maverick, a biography of Thomas Sowell. Uh, Jason, welcome to Bookstack. Thank you for having me. So congratulations on the new book. And, and for listeners who may not have read him, who is Thomas Sowell and why is he a maverick? Well, uh, Thomas Sowell is an economist. Um, he is currently based at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, where he's been since uh, 1980. Uh, before then, he taught uh, economics at any number of schools, uh, Cornell, uh, Brandeis, Amherst, uh, Howard University, the historically black college, in Washington, D.C. Um, he is the author of dozens of, of books, um, primarily books written uh, for the general public, not written for his peers in the academy. Um, he's very devoted to economic literacy, something he, he got from his, uh, his mentors, I believe, at the, at the University of Chicago, people like Milton Friedman and George Stigler. Uh, Friedman, of course, uh, devoted a large part of his career after leaving teaching to uh, economic literacy and writing books for the general public, and, and, and Thomas sort of operated in that vein. Um, you asked why he's a maverick. Um, well, he's a, he's a maverick for many reasons, but uh, mainly uh, for, for something that really shouldn't distinguish you as a scholar, I believe, but does these days, and that is he's a He's a straight shooter. He's an honest intellectual. He's someone who has put uh, uh, truth above popularity. Um, someone who has followed the facts where they lead consistently over the decades, even when they lead to um, uh, politically incorrect uh, results. He's not been afraid to um, um, uh, to speak plain truths and, and, and suffer the consequences um, of doing that. And, and, and that uh, today, I, I believe, makes makes one a maverick uh, intellectual. And that's why I titled the book that way. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, one of the first things that you were attracted to was what you were talking about there, the clarity. You describe in the book how the first time you'd uh, heard of Thomas Sowell was when in college in the 1990s. And you compare it to Richard Wright reading H.L. Mencken for the first time. I was charged and shocked by the clear sentences. And how did he write like that, you say? How could I write like that? Yes, um, I, I was someone who who discovered uh, Soul's writings in college in the early 1990s when I was uh, working on the school paper. Um, I was sitting around with some some of my colleagues on the paper, and uh, we were discussing affirmative action. And someone said, "Jason, you sound like Thomas Soul." And I said, "Thomas who?" And uh, the person wrote down the name of a book on a sheet of paper, and I went to the school library that day and checked it out and read it in one sitting that evening and, and went back to the library the next the, the next day and, and checked out the rest of its Thomas Sowell collection and, and have been hooked ever since. Um, and I, I, I finally got to meet him in person um, uh, later on in the mid-1990s when I was working at the Wall Street Journal uh, on the editorial page. And Sowell would come through New York on book tours uh, and meet with editorial boards in the city. And uh, so that's when the, I first got to meet him. And then I later went out to the Hoover Institution and wrote a longer profile of him. Uh, that would have been in the mid-2000s. And we sort of struck up a, an acquaintanceship that is, uh, that's endured. 
I mean, you'd say in the book that you don't want to psychoanalyze soul, and and primarily this is a, a biography of ideas in in many ways. But but his but his personal biography is interesting, though, isn't it? That uh, he does not come from what we might describe as a traditional background for an intellectual. Oh no, not at all. And 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 you're right. I, I knew I could not. Um write a book uh, without getting into his personal life because um, he's argued that so much of, 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 of what he writes about and how he writes about things is drawn from his personal experience. So the two can't be entirely uh, separated. But I did choose to focus on, on his ideas um, in this book because he had already published a memoir. So if you wanted a deep dive into his personal life, um, you could get it there. And, and when I approached him about uh, uh, sitting for some long interviews for for this book, he wanted the focus to be on on his legacy as an intellectual, um, and and so that's what uh, that's what I, I chose to focus on. But yes, you're talking about um, a black man born in 1930 in uh, Depression era, uh, you know, Jim Crow South. He was born in North Carolina uh, to a very poor family. He was orphaned uh, as a child. His, his 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 father died before he was born. And his mother died uh, giving birth to a, a younger sibling. Um, uh, so Tom never knew his parents. He was taken in by a great aunt who, who moved the family first to uh, Charlotte and, and then to New York City uh, when he was about uh, 10 years old. And that's where he was raised, in New York City's Harlem neighborhood. And he was a bright kid, but he had a, um, a very tumultuous home life. He ended up dropping out of out of high school, uh, leaving home at the age of 17. He never graduated from high school, um, entered the military, was drafted into the Marines during the Korean War, and sort of found himself there uh, uh, in, in, in the military and uh, started to turn his life around. Ended up going to college on the GI Bill, uh, starting at Howard University, and then transferring to Harvard, uh, then on to Columbia, and then the University of Chicago uh, for his PhD. Um, Sol is someone who did not write his first book until he was, he was 40 years old. Uh, did not graduate from undergraduate school until he was 28. So he got quite a late start in life. And, um, and, and as you mentioned, it was quite a, an unusual route for someone who would go on to become uh, an intellectual. Yeah, and it very much seems to me to be part of uh, not just who he is, but but the way that he thinks that uh, this experience that you talk about being uh, orphaned uh, so young, uh, growing up uh, in, initially in a, in a family with no electricity or, or running hot water, um, that it just gives him a completely different perspective. And, and he recognises that himself, that uh, you quote him saying in the book that I've lived through experiences that they can only see and theorise about. So, it, this this respect that he has for common sense, for the wisdom of ordinary people, that's actually grounded in his own everyday experience, it seems to me. Oh, yes, absolutely. And he's also got uh, something of a, of a stubborn streak in him, for better or worse. Someone who had to really uh, learn things on his own, work things out for himself. Uh, he is not someone who is going to take your word for it. 
Um, and, and uh, you know, maybe that uh, has cost him um, in some regards. Uh, you, do, you do give the example of him cancelling a book contract just simply on the basis of the style in which a date will be put in the book. <laughs> yes, he had uh, submitted a large manuscript, uh, and I believe it was, you know, he had referred to dates as 800 AD, and they wanted to say uh, AD 800, and he said, no, um, uh, I've looked at a lot of other uh, uh, publishers and, and this style is fine and there's no reason to change it. And if we're going to start with this sort of uh, Mickey Mouse uh, issues like this, I, I, I just rather just just give me, give, I'll give you your advance back. And and he and he did just that. And he took it somewhere else, and uh, and they published it with the with the dates as he had them. So so that is a, a classic a classic Tom Soul story. Um, but he's um you know I I this has manifested itself in other ways uh, throughout his life. Uh, when when he was um, uh, uh, an undergraduate at at Harvard, um, he was doing a senior thesis on Marx, and. Um, and, and one of the leading Marxist uh, economists was right there in Cambridge at the time. Uh, and Tom's thesis advisor said, you know, I can introduce you to this guy. And uh, Tom said, nope, nope, I'm just going to read right through Capital, all three volumes myself. I don't want uh, my conclusions being attributed to this guy. So I, I don't know. I don't want to talk to him about anything. And, was, <laughs> and, and you know, you can, you can say, wow, um, but... More often than not, um, uh, it turned out well for Tom. That that thesis that he produced, without talking to that leading Marx theorist, uh, was published in academic papers, uh, ac academic publications later on. I mean, so so he has this stubborn streak, but he's also someone who's been extremely talented and, and could get away with it to some extent. Yeah, it's it's a curious mixture actually, because as you say, this this stubbornness, uh, the determination, comes through really strongly in the book. But but there is also a, a kind of a, a catholicity to his ideas that, as you say, I mean, uh, yes, he's he's a leading conservative, but uh, earlier on he'd been a Marxist. But you also see figures uh, popping up, like for example, John Stuart Mill, who uh, he respects as a thinker, but also as a person too, uh, and and that seems. To to be all part and parcel of of who he actually is. Yes, yeah, and 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 the Stuart Mills and uh, you know John Stuart Mill and and um, and Adam Smith and David Ricardo and Thomas Malthus. That is that that is studying those guys and their ideas was Tom's first love. I mean that that's his PhD is in the history of ideas, the history of economic thought. He went to Chicago not to study under Friedman, but to study under George Stigler who was the leading authority in the history of economic thought at the time. Uh, and, and that's what Tom wanted to do. I really thought, uh, think that he wanted to, to, to live out his days teaching uh, economics and, and, and the history of ideas, preferably at a smaller uh, college uh, where, where you could get to know the students. Um, it, it was not to be. Um, this was the, the 1960s and uh, academia was changing. Uh, uh, they, they, they were going through all kinds of transformations in higher education. You had a, uh, you know, an anti-war movement, uh, a gay rights movement, a women's rights movement, um, a civil rights movement, and all of this was playing out on on college campuses. And Tom was trying to to to, to make a career teaching economics. And he was a sort of a no-nonsense guy. You know, no, you cannot be excused from class to go to an anti-war rally. 
uh, no, we're not going to spend all class discussing the latest headlines. You know, I'm, I'm here to teach economics. You're here to learn. And, and that was just something um, that was harder and harder to do beginning in the 1960s. And, and there were these constant run-ins with uh, faculty and administrators over his tough grading um, uh, and, 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 and sharp elbows. And he found himself uh, leaving institution after institution. And I think it all came to a head uh, at Cornell in the late 60s when you had the violent student protest, uh, armed students taking over buildings and so forth. And Tom was, was really disappointed, disgusted really, at the capitulation of the administration. And he would spend, you know, another decade really in teaching, but I think he had one foot out the door after uh, that Cornell experience. And he finally wound up at, at, at the Hoover Institution where he could just write and uh, had no, no teaching duties and, and, and office hours and that sort of thing. Um, so there's, there's been a trade-off, you know, perhaps we'd have more, more Thomas Souls out there if he had stuck it out in teaching and uh, had thousands of graduate students uh, studying under him. Um, but the trade-off there is we have all these books, um, we have all the newspaper columns, um, we have his contributions as a public intellectual, um, which I wouldn't, which I wouldn't trade for anything. Yeah, it's, it's an it's an interesting it's an it's an enigma in many ways, isn't it? As you say, that perhaps if if he'd stayed in the in the university environment, there would be more thinkers like him. But the but the Hoover has essentially allowed him to become the the, the writer and the and the thinker that uh, he is. But uh, I mean, do you think that uh, in many ways that has lost something, or, or at least the irony, because he is a very uh, he's a thinker who's very much engaged with the public, uh, and yet he has spent most of his career. Uh, literally in in an ivory tower, or at least a, a red brick one at, uh, at, at the Hoover. Well, I, I think, as I said, I think it's 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 there's, there's been a trade off. I, I I personally just don't think he had the temperament for um, the faculty lounge. Uh, you 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 just um, uh, and, and if anything, it's gotten worse today. The the intolerance that um, uh, we see on campuses today. Uh, you you. You know, college college uh, teaching in, on, on a college campus is a very much a go along to get along uh, proposition, and and Tom was just not not that type of person, and um, uh, and he, he ended up being miserable, and and so I I I think he, he made the right call, um, uh, and I think he's had a, a much happier uh, uh, career as an intellectual based on making that call, um, and and I also think that he he gets a great deal of satisfaction. In writing for the for the general public, um, uh, you know, and and, and I, as I said, I think a lot of that comes from uh, Milton Friedman, uh, the example that Friedman set, where uh, you know, just sitting around and writing books that are only read by your peers in the academy is is not the way to go. Um, he wanted to explain economics to a, a much wider audience, and I think Tom has gotten a great deal of satisfaction. And being able to do that through book after book after book. I mean, he's he's most known for his writings on race, but his best-selling book is Basic Economics, which is uh, basically a textbook, an economics textbook with no no graphs and charts in it. Uh, he wrote one with graphs and charts. In fact, it was the book, first book he published uh, back in 1970. Um, he said writing the, the second one, the one without the graphs and charts, was much, much harder. <laughs> but um, but I think he takes a great deal of, of, of satisfaction in, 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 in doing what he's done. And, and, and it was also something that was stressed at the University of Chicago uh, under Friedman, 
that that economics, you know, unlike at MIT or Harvard, where economics was about math and 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 sort of uh, uh, elegant theories, at, at, at Chicago, it was it was about using economics to solve or address or explain practical everyday issues, and 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 that is the type of economist. Uh, soul wanted to be, or, or th that's the type of economic soul wanted to write about, or, or that's the perspective he wanted to bring to his writings. And I think he's he's been able to do that, and he's taken a great deal of of, of satisfaction. After he retired his column um, uh, back in 2016, I, I wrote uh, that you know some people just lost the best professor they had, even if they never went to college, because Soul, although leaving teaching, had continued to teach through those columns and through those books. I mean, he's certainly never been afraid to challenge liberal orthodoxy. Uh, I mean, for example, he uh, often opposes uh, affirmative action because he says it slowed the progress of the very group uh, that it's supposed to help. So so there's been a, a political edge as well as uh, the academic side of his thinking. That, uh, And in many ways, it seems to me he sees those two things as essentially existing together. Well, he's he's... Um, an empiricist, and, and again, this gets back to the Chicago training, uh, although I think Tom would argue that he brought that empirical mindset with him, uh, and, I, and I don't doubt that, but it was certainly stressed, um, facts and logic and reason. And yes, he brings that approach uh, to whatever he's writing about, whether it's race, uh, whether it's a social theory, whether it's political philosophy, he's 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 an empiricist first and foremost, and and that type of thinking is not always appreciated, uh, particularly when we get into discussing a lot of the racial controversies. Yeah, you um, you you actually give the example of quite early on in his career of a a confrontation that he has with the psychologist Kenneth Clark about race and intelligence. That uh, so that he's he's not afraid of these uh, to to really. Um, to face up to issues that he knows are going to bring controversy uh, with them. Right. And it's not that he's courting controversy. Souls, you know, Soul says, I, I started writing about race and these racial controversies out of a sense of duty, he says, because there were things that needed to be said and there were too few others willing to say them. And the Kenneth Clark example uh, you give uh, is, 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 is a good one. Tom was... Um, was was writing about uh, doing his own research on race and intelligence. Uh, this would have been sometime in the, in the early 1970s, and he came across uh, Kenneth Clark, this famous black psychologist. Um, and uh, uh, Clark said, "You know, Soul, you know, don't, you know, get get stay away from that stuff, and uh, uh, you, you know, just don't don't go there." And Soul concluded that Clark was afraid of what. What what uh, Soul might find, what the research might show, and Soul said, you know, if we want to help Black people advance, we need to know where they are because they can only get where they want to go from where they are, not from where we hope they are or wish they were or want to pretend they are. And so he didn't, you know, he didn't agree with. Uh, in this case, it was the work of Jensen, Arthur Jensen, that he was a. Uh, uh, tr taking on in his own research, uh, he thought Jensen was wrong, but he had to go find out the the, the the data and the facts and and show empirically that Jensen was wrong, and that is what Tom set out to do. He wasn't afraid to do that, and um and and you see that 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 attitude and that approach time and again 
in his work. And, and I must say, you know, that that is so missed today. Um, uh, there's a sort of intellectual cowardice that we see in the academy today. And I would use the example of um, this controversy over the, the, the New York Times uh, 1619 project and the whole critical race theory uh, debate. Um, you know, the, 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 the lead author of the 1619 Project, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, is not a historian. She's not an economist. She's never published a book on anything, uh, let alone on, 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 on American history or slavery or the Revolutionary War. Uh, and yet there's all of this deference to her out there. And I mean, there are no shortage of books written about American history and slavery and the, and the, and the American Revolutionary period, none of them by her. Why are so few historians willing to stand up and call her out? And it's because they're afraid. They're afraid of being called a racist. They're afraid of being called a sexist. They're afraid of social media mobs coming after them. They're afraid it might affect their livelihood, get them canceled, so to speak. Soul was never afraid. And, and, and I think we need a hundred more just like them. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting. I mean, you you talk about that example that uh, that it is uh, older historians uh, like Gordon Wood and Sean Wilentz uh, who who have been the ones who have uh, pushed back against it. Uh, exactly that project that you're talking about, right? But why so few? Is my point. You're right. James McPherson's another one who's pushed back. There have been a handful or so. But they are. Uh, but, but they are. But they're. A di I suppose the point that I'm trying to make is, although they're not Thomas Sowell's generation, who's a, a further generation on, uh, but they are a different generation. These are these are figures who are in their late 60s, early 70s, predominantly, um, very distinguished in the field. But they. But they are a different generation. Yes. Yes. You're right. And 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 they, I think, come out of an era when uh, the intellectual debate was much more robust and didn't get reduced to name calling and ad hominem attacks as quickly as it does today. I mentioned Arthur Jensen earlier, who was of course famous for his uh, uh, writings on, 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 on his genetic theories about, about race and, and, um, uh, and intelligence. And uh, Sowell, like I said, uh, disagreed with Jensen's conclusions and set about trying to prove Jensen wrong. Uh, but all the while, he maintained a cordial relationship with Jensen. There were many others who, who didn't like Jensen and just resorted to calling him names. Soul engaged. And, and, and the, the two uh, maintained a relationship throughout Jensen's life, um, uh, even while disagreeing with one another strenuously. And I guess, yes, that was something um, uh, of a different era that, that we, we don't see happen as often today. I mean, it is interesting that much of the criticism, the most vehement criticism, actually, of, of Seoul has come from black liberals um, and those on the on the on the left. Uh, and there have been other prominent uh, black intellectuals like John McWhorter, uh, Thomas Chatterton Williams, yourself, uh, of course. Uh, the, it, it seems that the disagreement is more than about politics. It, it seems something visceral, uh, almost as if uh, there's a sense of betrayal involved in it. Um, what do you think? is going on there for you, but, but also for, for Thomas Sowell? Well, it's, you're, you're right. There's a group think um, uh, that, uh, that is going on there. And, and, um, and it's been there for a long time. And, and Sowell was one of the first or one of the earlier casualties of, of this group think. You know, I went through um, scores of, of old interviews um, that, that Sowell had done over the decades, uh, both in print, uh, radio, television, and so forth. And um, uh, he would often be asked by an interviewer, you know, how does it 
feel to go against the grain of, of most blacks. And Sol would say, uh, no, 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 you don't mean I go against the grain of most blacks. You mean I go against the grain of most black elites. And black elites aren't representative of most black people any more than white elites representative of most white people. And, and Sol would go on to cite examples of the disconnect between uh, what, what these elites were saying on behalf of blacks and what everyday blacks themselves were saying. And, and you could take the issue of busing back in the 1970s, which most black elites supported, your NAACPs and other civil rights groups, black politicians, but black people themselves never supported uh, busing, putting their kids on these buses and uh, for hours on end every day to ship them out into the sur suburbs to integrate white schools. They wanted good schools built right down the street. Um, uh, yet the black elites push for, 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 for busing. And, th and that holds true today when you talk about, say, uh, affirmative action in college admissions or, or, or um, uh, you know, defunding the police. Um, these are things that are supported by the black elites but rejected by everyday blacks, according to the polls. Uh, so that disconnect has been there a long time, um, and and what you see in the in the in the Ibram Kendi's and the Ta-Nehisi Coates's and the Cornell West um, is is just a, a further example of what's been going on. Uh, this dynamic has been going on for quite for quite some time. Uh, but Sol has you know Sol has pointed out uh, that that these people cannot be allowed to get away with speaking for most blacks. They're, they're making these self-interested arguments and pretending that they're for uh, on behalf of all blacks. I mean, critical race theory is a, is a good example of this. I mean, critical race theory comes out of the legal academy in the 1970s. It's essentially a fancy argument for affirmative action, for racial preferences. Uh, what was being argued back in the 70s is that race and gender should be used as an academic credential in hiring. And that was put forward, and critical race theory was put forward in support of that. Uh, so it's a fancy argument for affirmative action, which again is uh, 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 something you know, a, a self-interested argument that that black elites were making on behalf of black elites. At the end of the day. So what about the uh, the criticism that many of those kind of figures would make that uh, Thomas Sowell's work denies racial discrimination? Well, they don't. They, they they may say that. They may assert that. But it's it's factually incorrect. Tom has written volumes about the existence of racial discrimination. Um, he's never argued that racial discrimination doesn't exist. He's been himself a victim of racial discrimination. Sol has been turned away at restaurants and 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 trying to rent apartments or buy homes in certain neighborhoods. He served in, in, in the military uh, at, at a time and, 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 and lived in the South. Um, you know, he, th this, is, um, this, is, this is an ad hominem attack on Seoul, and it's completely divorced from the reality. What Seoul has in fact argued is that racial discrimination may exist, uh, but that it cannot be used as a blanket explanation for racial disparities. And, and the other side continues to want to use it that way. 
What about um, conservatism? I, I, I see that David Brooks wrote a piece recently called Conservatism, uh, an Elegy, uh, and, and a sense that conservatism uh, is, is changing so much that, that what traditionally would have been considered uh, conservatism uh, no longer really exists. Uh, where, where do you think that, that Thomas Sowell fits into that? What is his conservatism in the context, for example, of the modern Republican Party, uh, of the Trump presidency and so on? How, how, how does he fit into that, into that more political picture? Well, I've always said, if you want to understand where Sowell is coming from, uh, whether the topic is, is, is race or ethnicity or, 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 or you know, political philosophy or social theory, um, if you want to get inside of his head, uh, the book to read is the one he considers his favorite, A Conflict of Visions. Um, uh, it's a book about the history of ideas, and he tries to explain what drives our, our ideological disputes about freedom and equality and justice and so forth. And he traces these ideas back at least two centuries uh, to the thinking of, of, of people like William Godwin and Rousseau and down through John Rawls and the social justice activists today. Um, and this, uh, the conflicting or contrasting visions are, are unconstrained uh, or, or more utopian vision, and the constrained, or sometimes he calls it the, the tragic vision. And people with a constrained vision of human nature see mankind as sort of hopelessly flawed. They see inherent limits on, uh, to human betterment. You know, we might want to end uh, the war or, or poverty or racism, for example, but it's probably not going to happen. And, and so, therefore, our focus should be on putting in place institutions and, and processes that help us deal with problems that we're probably never going to fully solve. Um, you know, when, when Immanuel Kant says, you know, from the crooked timber of humanity, no truly straight thing can ever be made. That's sort of a, your, 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 your tragic vision of humanity. And then on the other side, he says, we have this, people have these unconstrained vision, which basically rejects the idea that there are limits to, to human betterment. Um, uh, not only can we manage these issues, but uh, uh, these problems that we have, uh, like poverty and 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 and, and, and you know, inequality and so forth, we can solve them. We can eradicate them. Um, uh, and, and 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 moreover, there are no trade-offs involved. Everybody can have it all. Um, uh, it's just a matter of willpower and 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 reason. And 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 depending on how you think about the world through that unconstrained lens or through that constrained lens, um, you know, goes a long way, Sol argues, in, 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 in determining how you're going to think about taxes or military spending or rent control or any number of, of, of issues that, that, that uh, we discuss through public policy debates. And Sol obviously takes this more constrained view of, of humanity and, and, and what is possible. And, and that is what he is bringing uh, to these debates. Uh, now, whether that gets labeled, you know, conservative or Republican or so forth is, is, is going to shift over time. Um, uh, but that's where he's coming from. Um, and, and he's someone who's largely rejects the labels. I'd probably put him on the conservative libertarian uh, side of the spectrum. But, um, but it's more of a constrained view of human nature. Or tragic view of human nature that he holds. That's the one constant, I would argue, in terms of his thinking. 
So the book is Maverick, a biography of Thomas Sowell. It's written by my guest, Jason Riley, and published by Basic Books. Uh, but for now, Jason, congratulations again on the book, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Demir Marusik. We'll be back again after the holidays. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, signing off for 2021 and saying thanks for listening.